The Plumley Pod, episode 28. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to the Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and today's guest is the People's Lawyer. David, welcome to the podcast. I am super excited to have you here this morning. You have been recommended to me by the listeners. I was, of course, aware of your work during the, what I call the pandemic. And first question is, can you tell us about your glittering academic career? Because I would really love our listeners to hear about people who have been through a real education in some respects and have been extremely successful. Well, it all started, I suppose, as detailed in the book, when I needed to excel at school to make up for the fact that they were destroying my social life in elementary or primary school, because I had a very good friend in year, it would have been year four or five, something like year four or five. And we were unstoppable. We were hilarious. We had great fun. So that by the end of the year, the first year that I was in the same class as him, we were both bottom of the class. They then went on to separate us. And he went on to just lead a relatively normal life. I don't know exactly what became of him. I did meet him once or twice afterwards when we were young adults. But I needed to get off the bottom of the class to compensate for the fact that there was nothing going on in school now. There was no, there was no fun, nothing just surrounded by boring, what I call toe-the-line classmates. So I started to put my head down, and that led me to become pretty much top of the class, pass my, what was known as 11-plus at the time, special exams to get into elite schools. And I ended up at Manchester Grammar School, which is an elite school in the north of England. And the theme continued because I was surrounded by people that I didn't recognize because they were the sons and daughters of successful people. And my parents were ordinary working class parents. So I didn't really feel particularly at home at this school. So I did what came naturally, which is to continue to excel. That led me to get very good grades in modern languages, French and German, and a good grade in Latin. I was the only boy at that school that was ever allowed to do three languages for A-level and nothing else. I then took the Oxbridge entrance exam and found myself getting into Cambridge where I studied law. Now, why did I study law? Well, I wanted to study French, but in fact, they didn't allow much language at degree level. It was more literature. And I just thought I was sick of reading literature, sick of reading books. I'd been sort of sausage factoried into Oxbridge. I'd been on the conveyor belt of success, academic success. So I thought, well, I'm not going to do French. What else can I do? I wanted to do psychology, but the pressure was intense to do something that led somewhere specifically. So I chose to do law, and I got a second-class degree at Cambridge, which actually I'm relatively proud of because I didn't study much, and I never really, I was never particularly interested in it. Uh, those who were interested in it and did study it tended to get firsts or at least high seconds. And then the question was, now what do I do? Well, I have to. I'm on. I'm on a roll now. I think. Well, I've got to see this through. So I did my solicitor's training. And then found myself in London doing training as an uh, what's known as an article clerk, which is a trainee lawyer, solicitor, we call them in England, attorney maybe elsewhere. Still not particularly happy, but at least I'm living the so-called high life, which is 
in London, away from my family, my the routinely dysfunctional family that we all love to escape as soon as we can. And I was doing a kind of law that's basically legal aid, what's known as assisted, where the clients have state assistance because they're not rich and they have everyday what we call high street problems. As soon as I qualified, I took some time off because I thought it's now time to reconsider everything and eventually got back in by accident when my sister's boyfriend left a job as a lawyer to go to Israel. So I took his job and did that for a year. And then the disillusionment really set in big time. And I ended up just doing some menial work. I was very happy because I was now breathing fresh air and then went off to Spain. And that's where my teaching career started. I ended up teaching English as a foreign language in Spain, then came back from Spain after seven years when my Spanish was good enough to take it away. And my lifelong passion was bridge, the card game, started teaching that. And to cut a long story short, I got funding to go around the country teaching a junior version of the card game, bridge ostensibly for maths and thinking skills. But in fact, it turned out that what they needed was social and emotional skills intrapersonal and interpersonal skills. And when I asked my funders to shift the goalposts, that's when I got defunded. So that led me to write a book about my experiences in school, which you're reading at the moment, Sarah, School No Place for Children. And then I was invited to do a keynote speech at the Glastonbury Symposium on the book, which went very well. And I was planning a tour based on school being no place for children when COVID hit in 2020. And then people said, David, you need to do something a bit broader than just schooling. And so I went on the streets and talking, speaking as much truth as I could muster from my research. And at the end of 1920, sorry, not 19, 2020, I was on the streets of Morecambe when I was addressing the crowd. Some of them knew me, some of them didn't. And I said, for those who don't know me, I am... And I got stuck there. And this is November 2020. And I just, it just came out. I'm the people's lawyer. And it turns out that that was probably appropriate because I am for the people. Even when I was solicitor, I was working for the people insofar as. And I am a lawyer. So I happen to be a, a trained, legally trained, qualified lawyer. So the descriptor stuck like glue. And it, 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 it's not me. It's an it. It developed a website and a reputation and. I think you know some of the rest. <laughs> I certainly do. My goodness me, what was your initial reaction to the alleged COVID pandemic? How did you know? What did you feel? What were you thinking at that time? Well, I spent two days in no man's land thinking there's something wrong here. And nothing and no one can affect what I do or my thinking or my decisions. So I was still leading the same life that I was leading beforehand getting on the metro, but because I hadn't done my research about viruses and about COVID yet, I was getting on using my elbows. And if somebody passed me on the Metrolink or in the streets, I would breathe in and, and step back a bit because I'd heard there was a rumor going around and I'd seen the uh, Wuhan video that people can drop dead in the streets. Well, I knew that that didn't apply to me because I'm, I'm a fit man, a well man, and I'm not going to drop dead in the street just because someone breathes on me. I knew that much, but it took me two days. It took me two days to uncover the hoax and listening to inspirational figures like David Icke, who was the first man to go public and say something like, there is no virus. And I thought, ooh, 
Yes, I believe, this is me thinking, I believe that there was no virus. My research suggested to me that there was no virus, but I hadn't gone public yet. When I heard David Icke saying that there was no virus, then I went onto the streets of Manchester, taking the mickey out of the virus, singing songs, because I'm a singer as well, chorally trained. And I was singing songs like, who's afraid of a little virus, a little virus, a little virus? Who's afraid of a little virus? Certainly not me. Now, that was my way, and I wasn't the people's lawyer. I was just David rallying the troops, giving people a breather from the fear porn and the hysteria. And boy, oh boy, did we take some flack, you know? And I thought the only way to deflect this flack is not to shout and scream at them, is just to make fun of the whole thing. And so I spent months from about March to about June, July, August, making fun of the whole thing of the, on the streets of Manchester and then giving some more serious talks when the music stopped and we, we encamped somewhere to give these impromptu speeches. So I hope that answers the question. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I hadn't known about your singing. I didn't pick that up in my research, but thank you for sharing. Good tip. Oh, it's, um, Brit- was- it's Britain's best kept secret, Sarah, but it's, it's <laughs> no longer, unfortunately, yeah. It's out now. That's it. Wow. As well as listening to relatively famous people in the alternative community talking about there is no virus, was there any particular piece of evidence or was there any particular thing that you did that you looked at that just made you go, I'm certain? What I'm getting at is why were you so sure? I'm totally with you, by the way, but I'm wondering what did it for you? Well, I've lived my life on my gut instinct, my intuition. And my gut instinct was telling me in no uncertain terms that there was no such thing as transmissible disease. That was my gut instinct. And then I came across the work of Andy Kaufman and Thomas Cowan, who were leading the way in questioning the viral narrative. And I'd also heard of terrain theory. So I would say that digging deeper into terrain theory sealed the deal for me and gave me my permission not just to believe that I was right, but to know that I was right. Amazing. Yeah, so it was, and then that made its way into my talks. My talks were developing into something called Disclosure 2021. And it wasn't just about lawful rights. It became about truth about health and education. So really, although I call myself the people's lawyer, I could really call myself the people's law, health and education consultant. My goodness me, that's a hell of a title. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds a bit pretentious, but anyway, there you go. Aim high, aim high. (laughs) That's what I keep telling people. That's what I keep telling people. For me, I I looked, obviously, I'm a mathematics teacher, as you know. So I took my confidence to speak out from the, everyone's looking at this now, but they weren't at the time, the excess mortality, as it's called. I'm a bit simplistic when I look at statistics. I look with rather a lot more common sense than most people are trained to. And I knew that they were lying about definitions of so-called COVID. I knew that they were fixing it and fudging it because there was no flu deaths. What, nobody's died of flu? It's all COVID. So I was like, well, they're lying about that. So how can I prove it without even looking at the categories? And I thought, well, let's count dead bodies. It's not very nice, but it's a very simple method. If you count the dead bodies and compare how many we've got now to the previous five-year averages for the same month, i.e. March 20, April 20. And let's compare them to the last five-year average. Let's compare them to the last 10-year average. And actually, I know that the ONS produced some of these graphs and charts themselves, but I didn't 
take those. I just took the raw data and made my own because I wanted to prove it to myself. I think that's like a, a maths teacher disease, wanting to take the raw data and make graphs and, and see for myself. And that's what gave me my permission to say, hang on, there's something wrong here. You can't close a country down, an economy down based on no more. There are actually less deaths at that time than ordinarily for those months of the year. So I, w- I was, well, at first I couldn't believe it, but of course I'd done the numbers myself. I'd run them myself. So I knew I was right. And that's how I gleaned mine. But I certainly was listening to some of the same people you were, and it was wonderful to hear. I'd not heard much about terrain theory before, and I was certainly very interested in it because I was always curious as to why when my husband gets really sick with some sort of flu or cough or cold, I don't get it. We live together, we sleep together, we, we share the same air. We, like, how does that work? How come I don't get sick when you do? So I was, I was always puzzled by that, and that it was very, very interesting to read and to listen and learn about some about terrain theory. I appreciate there was an awful lot of what you call fear porn from the the television sets, the telly screens, if you like, the radio, the social media. But how on earth did we get to the levels of what I call branch COVIDian compliance? How did we get to the almost religious belief in the mask, for example, which there is no evidence whatsoever that these things even work? How did we get there? How did that happen, do you think? Well, that was confusing even the most enlightened and awakened of us. How on earth is this happening? And why is it that you can hold up the stats to people who are panicking and fretting and just say, excuse me, do you realize that fewer people died in 2020 than in 2019, 2018, 2017, et cetera? And they just, their mind goes blank. They're not listening. They're not taking it in. Then just before we all pulled our hair out with frustration. And if you can see me on video, you'll know that I'd already pulled my hair out. Along came Matthias Desmet with his mass formation psychosis and hypnosis theory. The Americans call it psychosis. He prefers to call it mass formation hypnosis. And he suggested that a certain section of the community, in fact, the majority, a substantial majority, are in a state of hypnosis. Their brains have been deactivated What's happened, fleshing out what he said, basically, and this relates to our interest, Sarah, which is schooling. At school, you are, let's say, not encouraged or discouraged from thinking for yourself. You are also separated in a form of false artificial competition from your classmates. So, for example, speaking to your classmates, which in an adult context would be pleasant and social and called socializing, speaking to your classmates is criminalized, penalized, and referred to as disruption. And an atmosphere and an an environment of sterility and intellectual, uh, a, a kind of intellectual desert is created in which not a lot is going on inside people's heads. They're just passive receivers of data and information. So by the time they leave school, not only do they feel separated from their fellow boy or girl or young man or young woman, but their brains are not functioning. Their brains are malfunctioning. And we can obviously explore that later on in another part of the conversation. They're no longer questioning what they see, hear, or believe to be true. And on top of that, if everybody else is believing what they see, hear, and believe to be true because someone in a white coat told them. And that's the other thing, that when you leave school, you leave school with the 
utter conviction that the white coat, the expert, knows best because you were not allowed to question the classroom white coat, a.k.a. teacher. So that prepares the ground for institutions like the BBC and Public Health England to tell you what's going on and give you instructions as to what to do about it. The BBC then add on the fear porn, and now what you have is a kind of knee-jerk response to the fear porn and the false information that's being put out by the state based on the fact that when you left school, you left school in a state of what I call complex post-traumatic stress disorder because if you put a boy or girl who naturally want to speak, shout, run, dance, skip, hop, socialize, make things up as they go along, if you put them in a sterile straitjacket, then by the 10 years later, by the time they reach adulthood, they are a basket case. They are suffering inside. Now, that internal suffering is preyed upon by the authorities because what they do is, obviously, they're not going to tell you this. They'll tell you nothing of this. They will give you an external enemy. It used to be drugs, then it was terrorism, and now it's a, a global virus. They will give you an external enemy that will alleviate the internal pain that you're suffering, and you will latch onto that eternal enemy, so external enemy, I should say, which gives you relief from the internal suffering. And anyone who attempts to awaken you from this relief from internal suffering by telling you truth or giving you more reliable information, they become your enemy. And that's how you react. You react as if they have hurt you, threatened you, or harmed you. And these are the responses that we've been getting. Yeah, we, I think we've all seen that for sure. And just to back up what you're saying about the PTSD experience that happens to many, many children on, on leaving school or at some point during school, that would be perhaps best backed up by the indicators for things like depression and anxiety. The levels are through the roof. I've been speaking to CAMS, the child mental health teams, and they are overstretched. They are busier than ever before. They've got more referrals for children with severe psychiatric problems than we've ever had in history. And it, from what I can tell, it's being completely ignored. I don't see who is beating the drum for this in what I call the fake news media. I think you swore earlier. I think you might have said something like BBC. but disgusting word. Mm, and yeah, <laughs> it's quite all right. We use other swears, just not those ones on, on this show. But no, yeah, you can see the degradation of our young people, particularly their psychology. And this is one of the things that I've been trying to get over to parents in particular, is many of my email list would withdraw their children from schooling tomorrow if the government mandated a poison shot, i.e. the government mandated a physical harm, a potential physical harm to a child. However, they seem less concerned about all of the psychological harm that is consistently being done to their children in the classrooms. And that's been my sort of personal struggle, trying to better and better explain this. And of course, then when the Branch Covidian madness really got going, I was just, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. So as I can tell that you've been certainly doing your homework on uh, Matthias Desmert, the, uh, is he the Belgian psychologist who's yes. been explaining mass formation, sometimes called mass formation psychosis, but you're right. Yeah. He prefers hypnosis, doesn't he? He explains that very well. 
So we talked about the people who can see straight through it. We've talked about the people who are hypnotized. But then I think there's this other third group of people, and that's a group that David Icke talks about quite a lot, who know that something is wrong. They can see something's not quite right, but they go along with it anyway. For me, I find some of those people the most aggressive and violent people towards those of us who are telling the truth. My personal perception is that they're most dangerous and most angry with us because I think they're projecting their own cowardice in a way onto us. They're angry because we're doing the things that they should be doing because they can see that this isn't right as well, but they're not speaking out and they're going along to get along. And to my opinion is that some of the worst abuse that people like us are getting is actually not even coming from the people who are genuinely scared, but actually the people who are sort of in that third group. What's your thoughts on on that third group of people? Well, that third group of people are projecting outwards something called WETIKO, W-E-T-I-K-O. And David Ike does mention this. It's the collective shadow. They are the, and um, M. Scott Peck would call them the people of the lie. They are the people who are so traumatized by their own lives that they dare not focus on a square inch of their own shadow. So they are doing good, being kind, being compassionate, doing the right thing pretty much all the time. And they dare not for one minute be told, or you dare not for one minute tell them that they are not doing the right thing because it is like threatening them with death. It's a moral death sentence for you to hold up the light paper or Brighter Times, which is the magazine that's fairly new, which is complements the light paper. Holding these Truthful publications up is like, well, it's kind of sacrilege. It's this Wetico is a mind virus. It's the shadow that operates on ignorance. In other words, if you deny it, it just grows. It's a bit like a cancer. If you ignore the ill ease or dis ease in your body, then eventually it may produce cancer. And the cancer is saying, well, you've ignored me for 5, 10, 15 years. You're not going to ignore me now. And this is what Wetico is. It's if you don't deal on it in little ways with your little shadow or aspects of tiny shadow, then it grows and grows and grows and becomes a huge shadow. And it's this shadow that can be leveraged by the authorities and they can tap into it because it operates on fear. It's fueled by fear and fear and ignorance. And is this fear and ignorance, going back to the schooling, is schooling is all about promoting fear of authority and ignorance of truth and taking, of course, God or divinity off the equation so that there's no moral buffer zone to fall back on. So people who send their boys and girls to school now are essentially giving up on humanity. And that's a bold, dramatic statement, but that's my message now. Don't give up on humanity. Keep your boys and girls at home. Yeah, I feel you're right. I really do. I Many people that are campaigning for school reform and this, that, and the other are completely missing the point. Schools are working perfectly fine. They're doing exactly what they were designed to do. Schools are designed for the state to keep the status quo. They were never designed to educate your children. At best, they are childcare so that you can go back to the plantations of Slavelandia where we were all forced to work. That's best case scenario, but they've subsequently at some point been hijacked by people who really know what they're doing. And it's now a you know brainwashing institution. It's I call them indoctrination centers. I, I call them what they are. 
you know, I really do fear for parents who are dropping their children off daily. Stop it. You're hurting them. They're subject to psychological abuse on a daily basis, whether you can see it or not. And that in some respects, that can be more harmful than physical abuse. Absolutely. It's, physical abuse heals quite quickly. Sticks and stones. Yeah, broken leg, right? Take example of a broken leg, six weeks, eight weeks. But a broken mind, do we even know how to heal one of those? I don't know the answer to that question. No, it's, it's, um, it may well be that we have to be philosophical and certain sections of humanity are what we could call write-offs. And they will have to uh, reincarnate, come back all over again and go through the cycle of life, birth and death and rebirth. Um, so this shift in consciousness is only going to be enjoyed by a certain minority. The, uh, yeah, so schooling is a holding place. It's a place where your soul, your soul growth is um, frozen, freeze, frozen in time, put on hold. And you can tell, the way that people like me can tell is that when I go to schools and work with six, seven, eight-year-olds, they haven't been got at sufficiently yet, and you can have a serious amount of fun with them, maybe even nine and 10-year-olds. But if you go to 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds, it's like working with zombies, strange beings that I personally don't recognize. They don't recognize me, and I don't recognize them. We're now living on different planets in different dimensions. So something happens between the age of five, six, seven, and the ages of 11, 12, 13. So it's that, it's that period. What I would say is if you, do, if you really do have to send a boy or girl to school, make sure they're at least 14 because no one is going to mess with their head once they get to 14 and they'll be able to answer back and they'll be able to shake a teacher by the, by the throat or by the neck and put them straight because they will have the truth if they've kept away from school up till that age. And then they can go at the age of 14 to have vocational skills or academic skills finely tuned but we must keep them out of school from dot to 13, 14. Keep them safe. What I do in my talks, I like to use dramatic language because if you, I don't pussyfoot around anymore. If you send a boy or girl into school at the age of five, six, seven, I call that child um, sacrifice because you're entering them into the satanic arena. And they, they may not be physically sacrificed. Well, Maybe they will be physically sacrificed if they call a lockdown and schools are now putting in lockdown drills and kept in overnight. Maybe they will be physically sacrificed uh, and injected uh, overnight and, be, and told that they need to be injected because there's something very nasty that they could pass on to their mummy and daddy. And you don't want to cause any harm to mummy and daddy, do you? Yes, but my mummy and daddy told me that I'm not allowed to take any uh, vaccines Yes, but your mommy and daddy really, they're not doctors and they don't know the truth about what's going on. And Jimmy and, and Sally and, and Peter and Jack and Billy, they've all taken the, the vaccine and they're okay. You can see, you see, so we're looking at a, a genocidal agenda and the very, the very best case scenario, if they are kept in overnight, is they will be filled with a sterilizing agent. Now, I know this is, um, this sounds very dramatic, but to be quite honest, all this nonsense is not for no reason. You don't organize a global scam and a global fraud and the, and I believe the latest figure is 10 million deaths from the jab. It's probably a lot more than that, to be quite honest. Um, you don't, 
you don't organize all of that and, and the financial and moral and emotional and social chaos, you don't organize all of that and say at the same time, well, at least we'll keep the kids safe. It's not happening. This is a full-on genocidal agenda, the greatest genocide, and the world has known quite a few genocides. Uh, Britain has been responsible for most of them in the last 100 years. And you don't organize a global genocide and leave the kids alone. In fact, you could argue, and a lot of people do, and I'm one of them, this is all about the kids. So if you're organizing it, you don't really care about the, um, the older people. They're going to die soon anyway. But the kids, if you want to kill off and control, kill off 7 billion people and control the other 500 million, you've got to get to the kids. So we need to be very mindful that the main thrust of the agenda will be carried out in schools. School, if they're going to close hospitals down, schools will become the new hospitals. I fear an awful lot of what you've just said there might be absolutely on the money. The children are a symbol of truth and honesty and decency and light and hope for the future. And like you say, how could you get the agreement to pull a global scam and then say, oh, but we'll, we'll leave the children alone? It doesn't make any sense. Another thing that I am constantly befuddled by is the mindset of parents and grandparents that they can see the politicians for what they are, WEF puppets. They can see the likes of the WHO, the WEF, the Council on Foreign Relations. They see these so-called institutions for exactly what they are. They're aware of the prostitutes and the fake news media. They're aware of Harmer. The P is silent, right? Anyway, I pronounce it Harmer. They're aware of that. They can see that. They can see the scam and the lies and the brainwashing in the hospitals and the behaviour the frightening behavior of some of the hospital staff towards, you know, human beings, sometimes very sick human beings. And yet, the people in charge of all this are also in charge of schooling. It's the same people. How can you separate? How, how is it that you think that the schools are somehow separate or different to the judiciary, to politics, to the fake news media? You must have seen during the pandemic how interconnected all of that stuff really is. It really was David Icke's moment. He calls himself the dot connector. Well, yeah, way to go, because didn't the dots all connect during the last two years? Way to go. People have said all kinds of things about him in the past, but credit where credit is due. Look at how much of it he was bang on about, and it came straight into perfect view. As he says, it's entered the room and the door has closed behind it. We can see it now. And these people that are running all of these awful, awful demonic scams on humanity are also the people in charge of your child's schooling. Like, how am I miscommunicating this message, David? What am I doing wrong? Well, okay, let me answer that question indirectly with, uh, with two, from two points of view. When, I, when I've been out and about saying what I've said, which basically is uncovering the scams and the hoaxes, out on the streets, people have come up to me and said, well, what do you know? You're not a doctor. And in my talks recently, what I've been saying to counteract that has been saying, well, I've been saying this. Okay, I'm not a qualified doctor, but that's pretty much irrelevant anyway. I'm not, uh, I am a qualified lawyer, but I didn't know any law after I qualified. You know, so it's not, a, the, the word qualification is, is a, is one of those deceptive legalese words, you know, is what do you prefer, a qualified success or a success? So the qualification, the word qualification is a limiter on your knowledge and your competence. 
Anyway, that's by the by. So what I now say in my talks is it looks as though I'm full of hubris and arrogance by, by, by naysaying 10, what 10 million doctors say around the world. There's only one of me and there's 10 million of them. How does that work? How can I be right and 10 million of them wrong? And 10 million of them be wrong? Well, what I say is this. They're operating from one script. They're all trained by and trained to follow the same script, which was ultimately the big pharmaceutical script, which is ultimately the big banking script. So they only have one opinion. There are not 10 million opinions. I'm not outnumbered 10 million to one. And that's true of lawyers as well. I would argue the insanity against the insanity of 10 million or 50 million lawyers around the world. But it's not 50 million opinions against mine. It's one. It's the legal, it's the law school script. So you've got the medical school script, the law school script, the dentistry school script, the, well, there is no banking school, but there's, they're just running scripts. That's all they're running. And because they have been deactivated and because they are also incentivized to obey and comply, even if they're not maybe as deactivated as some, then it's like it's a colossus. It's a, an absolute colossus that, that they cannot escape from. They're being dragged along by this tidal wave of compliance and conformity, which, of course, they learned in school. Now, let me just shelve that thought for the moment and bring in an anecdote. And this is the beauty of what I do, because just when I'm kind of struggling to piece together what I know, someone in one of my talks or in one of my courses gives me an anecdote and I go, aha, aha, I get it now. So, so this anecdote was from a man who, who's awake and his wife isn't. And at one point, the man is trying to give his wife some wake-up calls and she goes, stop right there. And he goes, what's up? She says, if what you're saying is true, then my life no longer makes any sense whatsoever. So you can shut up right now. That's what we're dealing with. So we're dealing with mass hypnosis, mass formation hypnosis, based on micro traumas that gather momentum and people need refuge from. We're dealing with the colossus of mass for, uh, schooling and education law school, medical school, and compliance with the financial norms because everybody wants a good status, a good income to pay the mortgage. And we're dealing with mass denial because there's a huge section of the community that dare not even for one minute consider that their lives have never made sense from the get-go. This is what we're dealing with. So what's the moral here? Um, to fully answer your question, what's the moral here? Well, it, we, we mustn't waste too much time and energy on trying to deal with the colossus. We have to create our own system with our own free, th uh, based on our own free thinking, based on our own sense of our, of our own divinity and our own place in the cosmos and, and thoughts that come through from the cosmos that we channel, because we don't create thoughts. We just receive them. Our brains are not transmitters. Our brains are receivers so and interpreters of thoughts that come to us. And the problem is that um, with the mass-formed people is that they um, do not attract thoughts that challenge 
and they do not process thoughts that challenge the received wisdom. Whereas there's something in our makeup, whether you call it a moral code, something in our heart, something in our soul, that filters out the mass nonsense and diminishes it before it takes us over. Or at least we, we have something in our system that prevents us from being taken over by nonsense thinking. You could call it just common sense, being, being connected to something that works, something that's tried and tested because the human race in some form or another has been on the planet for a very long time. And so we have a residual knowing of what works and what doesn't, what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. And somewhere along the line, these people that we cannot reach have had their moral code deactivated, which is why they're saying things like, well, you're entitled to your opinion. The other day I found myself saying to someone randomly, after I told her what I do for a living, she said, well, yes, but that's your opinion. I said, no, it's not my opinion. It's based on years of my own research, years of other people's research, and based on empirical fact and observed fact. It's not an opinion. And this is what we find that even if they are prepared to listen to us because they're in such a state of dysfunction and, and a state of artificial subjectivity, they regard everything as an opinion except what they're told by authority, which is fact. So we have opinions. They have access to fact. If it's not on the BBC, it's only an opinion. I think we ought to call it uncommon sense these days. I'm with you on the common sense, but perhaps it's not so common as it ought to be. I think un I'm going I'm to advocate for uncommon sense. Why then, I'm absolutely with you, I'm sat listening wrapped you know, with your thoughts here. And I wonder, it completely explains the sheeple, and I do call them sheeple and I don't apologise, I call spades spades, it must be a northern thing, I guess. But what about the awake people? Why are the people who are already awake still dropping their children off and sacrificing them at the door of their lovely primary school where Miss Honey greets their children with a sunny smile every morning? Why are they still doing that? One word, narcissism. Ooh. These are narcissists. And whenever I use that word in my talks, I can see um, there's a certain frisson of... of, of um, I don't know what the word is, but a frisson of, ooh, crikey, a recognition, soul recognition. I've just used a word that has triggered something inside of themselves because even within the free, the so-called freedom movement and the awake movement, we still have certain shadow aspects to deal with. And back in the day when I was going onto the streets of Manchester early 2020, to spring of 2020, I became unpopular with a certain section of the awakened community because I wasn't angry enough and I wasn't blaming enough people. And I wasn't calling out the police for complicity in crimes against humanity, crimes against children, paedophilia. And I said to the people, it's not my place to do that. I don't have any specific evidence that, of, of that anyway. We all know that it's true, but I can, I'm a lawyer. I can't prove that it's true right now as I'm standing here. Nor do I want to incite hatred or violence. What I want to do is encourage people to open their minds and their hearts and see what's actually going on. And to withdraw from that, we can, 
I cannot withdraw you from the nonsense and you cannot withdraw me from the nonsense. I can only withdraw myself and inspire you to withdraw yourself. So what these freedom-loving awake people are doing is hedging their bets. They're fudging the issue. They are doing lots of name-calling and creating a smokescreen of virtue signaling behind which they are sending their boys and girls to school, paying a mortgage, paying their council tax, paying the bills, none of which I recommend. And this is what I cover on my privacy courses, which we're not specifically going into today, but I thought I'd reference them anyway, because what's the point of being one-tenth non-compliant? Non-compliance is a, is a holistic, just like life, just like truth. You either live it or you don't. If you're sending your boys and girls to school or doing any of the other non-compliant things, you may as well be part of the mass-formed, hypnotized masses. And the rest is just blah, 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 quoting that young woman from Scandinavia. So um, I'm afraid there's a lot of people in the freedom movement. Um, and I once gave a, a talk in Manchester, and I actually said, uh, my introduction was, I'm here to give you a kick up the arse. And I actually said that because that's what a lot of people need. Um, there's, there's Netflix, Match of the Day. There's processed food, takeaways. There's all kinds of reasons not to rock the boat, even if you're awake. So there's the, the, the attack on hum, human psyche, the attack on human psyche is multidimensional. Yes, you may realize like you've gave, you've gave a list of all the things that is, uh, are going wrong and all the evils that are being committed against humanity, but you've still got these movies to watch and popcorn to eat and the kids to uh, encourage to sit still rather than be creative. So there's a, the shadow, the wetico shadow of compliance rears its ugly head or looms large over all communities, not just the sleepy heads or the sheeple, as you say but the awakened as well. So I cannot uh, rest until I've got this wake up FFS, you know, um, do the right thing. Don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. And now I'm switching to focusing very much on people getting their boys and girls out of school. That's my public talks. And then privately on my course, getting them to stop complying financially because you're feeding the beast. Why would you call out the beast as the beast and then pay all its, its agents' wages? And you're feeding your children to it. You're feeding your children to the beast. You are. What are you doing? By the way, the, that list of crimes against humanity that, that mums and dads are committing, I started at the age of five to seven. I, this was an incomplete list. We got distracted. Well, I got distracted. Probably got distracted by Wetico. It's everywhere. And uh, five to seven, age five to seven, it's child sacrifice. Age eight to 10, it's child abuse. Maybe eight to 11, maybe eight to 12. And, and 13 or over, it's child neglect or young person neglect. So that's the, you know, because the, uh, the older they are, the less harm you're doing to them by putting them in school. But it's, again, brainwashing affects us all. And, um, you know, so all I can do, all I can do is, is, get the message out there and hope that people receive it loud and clear. And one of the things that we haven't flagged up yet, and I'm sure you would if I didn't, is that 
From the age of seven, we only learn from, by repetition. That means that the message has to be received over and over and over again. And, and, and to answer the question you posed before, why is it that we're struggling to get this message across? The answer is, if you think about it, it needs repeating over and over and over again. And we need to, we need to plaster our labels and our subliminal messages on top of theirs. So I would encourage people to get themselves labels and, and felt it pens and go around. If you see a sign that says, thank you for wearing your mask, pencil in or um, pen in the word not. Thank you for not wearing your mask. If you've seen a sign that says, keep your distance two meters, then put a label over it that, um, that denies the truth of that. So we have to have our own subliminal messaging and banners on bridges and rebels on roundabouts with the yellow banners and yellow posters. So we have to be relentless. And a lot of people, because they've lifted the COVID restrictions, have got very apathetic and lazy that the attendance rates at my talks dipped to about 50% as soon as they, as soon as they lifted the restrictions. I had 130, 140 in 2021. And by 2022, it was down to 40 or 50. If I was lucky at one, at one meeting in Lewis, I had five people, but that's a, that's an, that was partly a promotional problem. I thought he was going to promote it and he thought I was going to promote it. But anyway, um, so yes, it's, um, it's about repetition. And that's one thing that by keeping them out of school, you're preventing the repetition of all the behaviors that form learned modification and learned, uh, trance-like behavior. So you're preventing it. So it doesn't really matter what happens at home, to be quite, to be quite honest, because simply keeping them out of danger is at least 50% of the victory. I quite agree. I couldn't agree more with that statement. For goodness sake, the first thing we do is rescue your children. That's the three-nighter that I give. Rescue your children. And I really, really mean that as you beautifully, uh, very eloquently laid out for people this morning. I want to ask you about modern foreign languages because it strikes me that those of us who are very interested in real education, I haven't figured this out fully in my own head, the reasons behind it, but we all seem to have an awareness of modern foreign languages and A, the problems in how they're being schooled and then B, the problems that arrive when you actually come to go to the country in question and try to use what you learned. I've obviously been reading from your book about your time in Spain. Could you just flesh out for people who haven't yet read your book, what's going on with modern foreign language in terms of the teaching and learning of those subjects? Well, I think that learning a foreign language does lots of healthy things to the brain and to the mind and the soul. When, when I landed in Spain, the first thing that I realized was that I was no longer in England, which sounds ridiculous to say, but the implications are that what I took to be, what, what I took as read and as cultural memes and dogma and tropes, the Spanish didn't recognize. The food is different. The times of day are different. The, the beliefs, belief systems, the belief systems are different. Everything's different. There are some vague similarities, but what you then have to do is start to rethink everything and you start to question everything. So simply acknowledging the validity of another culture and another language, irrespective of what it does for your brain when you're learning that language, and it does amazing things as we know, it opens you out to another way of thinking, another way of being, another way of feeling, another way of doing. 
even even learning that something has another word for it in another language reminds you that well a chair is not necessarily a, necessarily a chair a chair could be a chaise or a silla and that means that i have to question whether a chair is not actually a chair in the first place it's it's something that i call a chair and i know what i mean when i say chair but it doesn't actually cover all of its aspects <clears throat> so Modern language students learn that truth is not, or functional everyday truth is not what we think it is. There are absolute truths, but, but the everyday cultural truths and linguistic truths are not truths. They're something that we use. They are, they are usages. They are access points to truths, but they're only access points. And so when you're building different access points, you are kind of halfway to stepping out of the matrix because you're becoming philosophical about what's inside the matrix. Inside the matrix, there's just a chair. But outside of the matrix, there's something that we call a chair, but is not necessarily what other people call it. So I think that this is the gift of foreign languages to students and teachers of foreign languages. It's, it's the gift, the gift of multidimensionality and the curse of AI and Wetico and the system, the matrix is the curse of mono or, or duality of just a very, of mono, um, dimensionality or bi-dimensionality. So a piece of paper, two dimensions, a name on a piece of paper, two dimensions. But what we are and what languages remind us is that we are connected three, four, five, six dimensionally, multidimensionally, and that living language reminds us of that connection and reminds us that the dimensionality of artificial intelligence and of the matrix is very limited. And simply by using a language that another man or woman recognizes, we are stepping temporarily, momentarily, because there only is one moment, according to people like Eckhart Tolle, and I don't disagree, in absolute terms, we're stepping, we are momentarily out of the matrix when we use language to communicate between living, breathing beings. Is that the single reason that the learning and teaching of modern foreign language is being sabotaged in schools, do you think? I hadn't given it that much thought before you asked me, but I would say off the top of my head, it could well be. We may have stumbled across a, a huge truth here, Sarah. There's no question in my mind that the teaching of modern foreign languages has been sabotaged. And I say this because I know it's being, mathematics is being sabotaged in identical patterns. And I discovered this completely by accident because I live in France, have done since 2015, and I struggled with French at school. I dropped it. I didn't take it. I took German instead, which I did very pretty well at for my comprehensive schooling. But I struggled with this language. And so I took lessons when I got here. And I still just wasn't apparently picking it up. I was like, this isn't working. And then when I read about your experiences of trying to order a cup of tea in, in a bar in, I think, Madrid, I was like, oh, oh yeah, that's exactly it. And it's to do with the fact that there is no attention being paid on the correct tongue and lip positions for the formation of words, the muscularity, different muscularity uses, when you have to make shapes that are alien to yourself. There's no focus on how to make 
the shapes in order to be able to get the pronunciation correct. There's a gentleman who goes to a bar down the road from me, La Gangette, and he has had a very fine private school education in England. He used to play rugby for Scotland. And his grammar is perfect. I can hear it. He's conjugating his verbs perfectly. He's structuring the sentences in, in the correct manner. He can't pronounce a single word of French. He speaks Frenglish. He speaks Frenglish and the French can't understand him. And I know what he's doing because I know his grammar's right because I've studied enough about French grammar to know, oh, yep, yeah, okay, I see what he's doing there. But they haven't got a clue what he's saying because where we live, it's very rural. There is no English spoken here whatsoever, thankfully, apart from by the English, but we tend to avoid those wretched expats. They're not for us. But it, it would seem to me that this is sabotage. If you're a modern foreign languages teacher in the United Kingdom, what are you doing churning out students that can't speak a single word properly in the target country? What could be the reason for that? Uh, well, I think I do know the answer to that one. The, and it's quite obvious if you've done your research and do a bit of lateral thinking. And the clue is in what happened during 2020 and part of 2021. For about 18 months, life was illegal. Life itself was illegal. Just as schooling might be made illegal eventually, as it is in Germany and parts of the USA. What they're doing from the system, from the education system, is is siphoning off, syringing out all signs of life and vitality. Modern languages will be either taught by software and people will listen on headphones, or ultimately they will simply chip your brain and you will instantly speak, or so you believe. That's what you'll be told. I'm not so sure I can see that happening, but the, the idea is that people will literally be chipped into speaking whatever language they want or whatever skill that they need, like martial arts, kung fu or whatever, or, um, or mechanics. And human, the human being is being replaced. The transhuman will be the prototype of the ultimate finished article, which will just be an android or a cyborg and someone that's plugged into it. By then it will be 7G, not just 5G or 6G, it'll be 7G or even 8G where Wetico, which will inhabit the ultimate beast artificial intelligence system, will control everything, will con basically will replace divinity. So this is what we're up against, taking the conversation to the ultimate level now. We're, we're up against, and I do this more and more wherever I go. This is not about finance. This is not about even education. It's not about health. This is about existence. This is an existential threat to humanity. And this is what the end times is. We're living in the Armageddon scenario where if we get it right, humanity evolves and thrives. If we get it wrong, humanity dies a death. End of, end of humanity. So the, the stakes could not be higher. And that's why I don't take um, prisoners anymore. Um, and I call people out insofar as, and I speak my truth and I question everything and I don't mince my words. This is, this is a new version of me. I used to be, I used to hide my light under a bushel and be very, it may seem unreal to a lot of people when they hear me now. They just say, bloody hell, you're a bit, you're a bit bold, aren't you? Well, I'm making up for lost time. <laughs> my time hadn't come. All those years ago, we were still full on in the matrix and we didn't know what day it was. There were a few enlightened people like David Icke who were ahead of us. And he, he's a major prophet for our times and a, and a fan, fantastic inspiration. So I just want to give him some credit while, I, while I'm 
on on this podcast. Um, so yeah, it's it's all about the mass dehumanizing dehumanization process, paving the way for the robotization of everything. This is why we have to get back to nature. We have to get back to who we really are. You know, you just thank David Icke for his work and to quote him, you know, remember who you are. Remember who you are because that is what is being taken from us. That is what humanity itself is is being taken from us. And nothing symbolized that greater for me than the mask. The mask wearing was I, I will never do that. I never have and I never will. And I don't care what happens. Shoot me if you've got it, but I will never do that. It is the most degrading, dehumanizing thing. I, 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 I just, I couldn't tolerate that at all. That was a, a hard no, a big red line moment for me, just not happening. It's not only in your face, it's on your face. Wake up. I just can't put it more plainly. David, thank you so much for your time this morning. I, I've really enjoyed listening to you. I've learned so much. I have a whole page of notes, a uh, page and a half of notes to go away and, and have a good think about. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they find you and give a good plug for your book, which I'm, I'm halfway through? It's very, very interesting and I'm enjoying that very much indeed. Well, there's two things. Well, there's several things. The book on education and encouraging people to exit the schooling system and to promote it or to give it an even uh, higher promotion. It was written well, well, well before COVID. So no one can accuse me of jumping on any bandwagon. It was completed by the end of 2018 or maybe by the end of 20, I forget now, 2018 anyway. So it's available on Amazon for those who don't like Amazon and who can blame them. You can go on my website, which is the people's lawyer UK or lowercase.com. I'll repeat that. The people's lawyer UK.com. Click on the book at the bottom of the page, front page, and it'll send me an email, email and you can ask me for the book in person and I'll send you a copy if you send me funds on PayPal, for example. Um, I also do a privacy course, privacy and universal rights course which people can sign up to again privately. That's advertised on the same website. I also run live in-person events focused more and more now on the emergency, absolute global emergency of having to remove boys and girls from school. In 2020 and 2021 and early 2022, it was a general wake-up call for everyone, but now it's very much a wake-up call for mums and dads and especially for the awakened mums and dads, uh, please stop hedging your bets, stop fudging the issue. Let's stop the hypocrisy now and let's get the boys and girls out of school and ask questions later. Because people like myself and you, Sarah, we've got the answers that they need, but first they need to take the action and stop asking too many questions because there isn't time. They could call another pandemic any day, literally any day from October from October the 8th, possibly. All the last calls have been on the 8th of the month. So from October the 8th on, onwards, there could be another WHO pandemic call. Schools get locked down, shut in overnight, and we know the rest. Um, so there you go. Um, I am available for smaller workshops, especially with mums and dads, family-based workshops. I've got one coming up 
in Hammersmith uh, on the 25th of September and all around the southwest and southeast, which is where I'm based. If people want me to go further north live and in person, and I, I will, but we need to book it in advance and I'll get the train because I don't want to drive too far now. I want to save my energy for, for the live events and for the privacy course. So there you go, Sarah. Thank you for, the, for inviting me. I've enjoyed myself tremendously and it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very, very much indeed. David's book is called School, No Place for Children, A Wake-Up Call. That's School, No Place for Children, A Wake-Up Call. It was first published as an ebook in April 2015. I have a copy of the paperback in my hands. So first published in 2015 and the second and third print came out in 2018. I uh, highly recommend it. I literally have read half of it in, in a day. It's fascinating. I, I can't get enough of that. So as always... Ladies and gentlemen, the state gets its power from schooling. The people gets its power from education. Your child can either be educated or schooled. And these things are mutually exclusive. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.